you're good. Okay, we're in business. All right. Get this. Uh, and okay, there we go. Ready to start. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see all of you. Uh, in, in many of your cases, uh, I have to put the word see in quotation marks uh, because I haven't seen you yet, but some of you I've seen already uh, in the video windows there. And it's good to know that the rest of you are there. And as you know, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians on uh, Sunday mornings in our Bible studies. And I want to continue to do that uh, beginning, uh, continuing next week. And as you know, in six or eight weeks, uh, we're going to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's all about the resurrection. So we talk about the resurrection a lot then. But I wanted to, to pause from the regular uh, cadence of the mark of 1 Corinthians and go ahead and bring a lesson about uh, the resurrection this morning. It's going to be a little different uh, emphasis from what I'll be doing uh, when we get to chapter 15. When I get to chapter 15, I'll be talking primarily about the significance of the resurrection, although I'll mention evidence some too. too. Today, I will be focusing primarily on evidence. I've entitled this Christ is Risen. And as we did just a couple minutes ago, those of us who were already online at that time, we Christians typically, and, and some of you, if you're like me, probably already on social media with, uh, I don't know how many people already, we've exchanged that to traditional Resurrection Sunday reading, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And when we say that, we Christians say Christ is risen, we don't mean he, or we don't mean only, he lives on in the hearts of his followers. No doubt he does, but that's not what we're talking about with the resurrection. And we don't mean he lives on in the truths of the great lessons that he taught. Yes, he taught great lessons, but that's not what we're talking about when we say Christ is risen. Neither are we saying uh, that, well, he lives on in, in my heart, uh, hopefully in the figurative sense in which he means that. And that's actually figurative in a couple of different ways, but in the sense in which you mean that, that's true, but that's not what we mean when we talk about the resurrection, as you know. And, um, right, we also, when we say that we believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we don't mean, uh, we don't mean that in the sense that the spirit of our age means when it says that people believe things. Well, about 40 years ago, there was a TV spot for a particular brand of peanut butter and one line stuck in my head, uh, somebody says, uh, you, you got to believe in something. I believe in peanut butter. Yeah. Well, uh, it's not just, hey, we can we got to believe in something. So we just believe in something. Whatever helps us get us through our day, helps us uh, sleep at night. And we just choose to believe in it. And so we can just choose to believe anything we want. You can't choose to believe anything you want, but it might be wrong. You can't choose to believe anything, just anything you want and have it be a valid belief unless it lines up with external reality, the reality of the world that we really live in based on evidence. That is the claim that we Christians are making when we claim that Christ is risen from the dead. We mean that in a specific date in history, in a specific place, a human being who was also the son of God, having died somewhere a little... Uh, between around 36 hours earlier, came back to life and rose up and left the tomb alive. That's what we mean. We mean that Christ literally, 
bodily rose from the dead. And we can support that claim with historical evidence. We're not just uh, tossing uh, this around, hey, we just believe this, and this is just our thing, you know. No, no. It's true. It's universal truth. And we can support it with historical evidence. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. We talk about the evidence for the resurrection. I'll start out with a couple of passages of scripture. These are things written by contemporaries. Luke and Paul were both contemporaries of the resurrection, and they had seriously examined it and looked into it, and this is what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1-3, Luke wrote, to these, that is to the disciples, the eleven, he, that is Christ, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. He goes on, but here we see the death of Christ presented as a historical fact for which there is historical evidence and its support. The attitude here is not, hey, keep quiet, hey, don't don't ask questions, just believe. It's No, this is actually true, and we have the evidence to back it up. Okay. All right. So let's look, first of all, at the matter of the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. So we go to Resurrection Day, just outside Jerusalem. And the first people to see that the tomb was empty, well, depending on how you count it. Sometimes the sequence is interesting. The soldiers probably knew that it was. We'll get to them in a minute. But uh, anyway, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Salome, who is probably one and the same person with the other Mary, as mentioned in some of the Gospels. You can see from the slide that I put up here, this account or parts of it is given in all four Gospels. So Mary is also known, or excuse me, Salome is also known as the other Mary, who is also the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. So uh, probably one and the same person, we think. And it says other women. So there were at least three of them and possibly, probably, definitely, I guess, others. So there were a number of women. They came to the tomb. As you, you remember the story, I don't have time to read all these passages of scripture. You can look them up if you want. And uh, if you want a copy of this PowerPoint, uh, let me know. Text me, email me, and uh, I'll be glad to send you a copy of the PowerPoint. Anyway, um, they came to the tomb with spices early on the morning of the first day of the week after the Passover is over. It's Sunday morning, the first resurrection Sunday, with the purpose of finishing, completing the embalming of Christ. And they got there, and they found the tomb open and empty and attended by angels. You know the story. It's familiar, right? And the tomb was empty. So they head back into Jerusalem, and they tell the 11, the disciples, what they found. Peter and John come running, literally, to the tomb. 
they get there and they go inside. They entered the tomb and they found linen wrappings, but no body, no corpse in the tomb. The tomb was empty. And there are a couple of things about the linen wrappings. I've heard preachers say that the way the wrappings were arranged demonstrated that they could not have been taken off by human beings, whatever, and that, that the nuances of that are in the Greek. And I'll leave that for people who know the Greek or and or can find it in the sources that they look in. I didn't have to find it. So I'm, I'll leave that. But I will say this. Who would have had any motivation to take off the linen wrappings? Okay, so let's say the corpse is removed from the tomb. By somebody, person or per, party or parties unknown, remove the corpse and leave the wrappings in the tomb. First of all, why would you even take the wrappings off? That's just why. That that serves no purpose. They're not any good for anything. And yeah, that makes no sense. They just no one would have done that. Uh, that you would take it off at all if you're stealing the body. Well, whatever you're going to do with the body, do it with the wrappings too. And uh, if you are, um, uh, and if you're going to take the wrappings off for whatever reason, why would you do it inside the tomb? You're going to bring the body out, take the wrappings off there, and leave, you know, take them off inside the tomb. Makes no sense at all. There's no sense to that. The only reason that you take the wrappings off is if you were the person who had been dead and you were alive and you just left them behind. John saw and believed. Now, I believe, my, my understanding of that is that he saw the tomb was empty, of course. He saw the wrappings were there and he believed that uh, God had raised Jesus up from the dead, that he'd risen from the dead. Now, the only reason I suggest any uncertainty about that is, is that in the um, next verse, it says that Peter and John did not yet understand the scriptures that had prophesied and the things that Jesus had said in prophesying that he would die and rise from the dead. So maybe he just believed that Jesus wasn't there, but I think he probably believed that Jesus had risen at that point. He doesn't quite understand the prophecies about it, but... Wow, he's risen from the dead. So the tomb was empty, and we have several witnesses to that, several eyewitnesses to that fact. Okay, now, still on the resurrection day and in the town of Jerusalem, and let's talk about the enemies, because they're going to help us out here a number of times. We're going to summon the enemies back to uh, as witnesses, hostile witnesses, but uh, very helpful hostile, hostile witnesses. So the soldiers who guarded the tomb, you remember the story, and it's, uh, well, it's, it appears uh, at the bottom of uh, Matthew 27, near the end of Matthew 27, that the chief priest got Pilate, or Pilate allowed the chief priest to use troops detailed to them to guard the temple, to guard the tomb, to make sure the disciples would not steal the body. And then in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, we find out what uh, what happens to these guys is um, the angel of the Lord comes down and rolls the stone back and sits on the stone and the soldiers uh, faint dead away. And um, then they get up and it says, while the women were going in town to, to tell the disciples what they had seen, the disciples having apparently revived from their faint, I'm not sure, or excuse me, the soldiers, the guards, the soldiers, the guards, 
having awakened from their faint, and, and I've wondered sometimes, where were the soldiers while the women were there? Maybe they'd already left. Um, that's my guess, because the women didn't see them. So I'm going to say the soldiers left, but it doesn't really say. Anyway, it does say that while the women were going into town to tell the disciples, the soldiers went into town to tell the chief priests what they had seen. Rather a disturbing vision. If you're the chief priests and the elders, these other enemies, they had they had uh, engineered Christ's crucifixion uh, by pressuring Pilate and uh, stirring up a mob in the street out there. And they set the guard, and yeah, now they get this word, and I wonder about their state of mind at that time. But anyway, they say, "Well, here's a lot of money." Uh, and they come up with a story, and I'm going to talk about their story more in a little bit. I start to talk about explanations for the empty tomb. Their explanation was uh, the disciples came and stole it. More on that in a minute, but notice that the story that they tell, and you can find it again in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15, their explanation, their story admitted that the tomb was empty. Nobody at the time tried to say, this body's still in there. Right? The chief priests and the elders, they don't say, oh, it's not true. Stone's still closed. The Roman official seal is still on it. He's still in there. No, it isn't. Because that was an obvious non-starter. If you're in Jerusalem and it's Resurrection Sunday, well, the tomb's empty. You're going to have to deal with that. So, okay, let's talk about these explanations because a bunch of people, well, various people over the years have come up with explanations. However, when you when you boil them down to what they basically are, it turns out there's really only a few contestants in the room here. There's only a few uh, possible, uh, really, explanations. He was dead, he was in the tomb, and then he wasn't. So the first one, of course, is Resurrection Day, Jerusalem. The disciples stole the body while the guards slept. Okay? Because that's more plausible than the idea that Christ rose from the dead? You think so? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Uh, let's see if we have enough faith to believe this story. What does this ask us to believe? What do we need to, what are we going to have to believe if we're going to have, if we were going to sign on to this one? Well, this asks us to believe first that the guards all fell asleep. Not one, two, three, no, all of them asleep. Bear in mind, as I think you've heard before, you would expect in the Roman army. The penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was death. And they weren't kidding about this either. They would do this in the Roman army. So they all committed a capital offense, not one or two, all of the guards. I'm sure the many there were, but multiple guys all fell asleep. And then the disciples, the disciples who, when Christ was alive, had all forsaken and fled. And they all forsook him and fled there in the garden while he was alive. After he was dead, and they saw him die, and they knew that he was dead and he was buried, then, supposedly, we're going to have to believe, they found the courage to face the guards after he was dead. Like, hey, guys, let's take our two swords, because we've got two. Let's take our two swords. Let's go out there to the tomb. And we'll overpower the guards somehow from soldiers who like train with ship fighting with short swords regularly. That's okay. We'll two swords, we'll we'll deal with it. It'll be okay. And uh, then we'll take the body. 
Okay, and after he's dead, which will accomplish what? Because he'll still be dead, right? But let's say they want to do that, okay? We're going to have to believe that if we're going to believe this story. Then they got there, and I guess it was their lucky day because according to the chief priest's story, the guards were all asleep. So they got there, and the guards were all asleep. Well, that's a relief. They rolled the stone away, and they carried the body of the tomb without waking up the guards. Didn't trip over anybody in the dark. Would have been sleeping in front of the tomb, right? That's where they were supposed to be, so they would have been sleeping in front of the tomb. And the disciples get in there. You have to stoop to go through the door. It's not that easy. Carry a body. I don't mean to be, um, well, at all disrespectful to our Lord, but I don't know if you have ever tried to carry a completely limp adult human. Um, uh, David and I have, and it was it was kind of an adventure. Uh, he wasn't dead uh, in this case, thankfully, but um, if that is not easy, and especially in awkward places through awkward doorways, and they're going to do this in complete silence and never wake up the guards, not even one of them. Hmm. We've got to believe that if we're going to believe this story. And then having stolen the body and somehow stuck in past the guards without waking up any of them, they disposed of it elsewhere where nobody ever found it. And then they began, six weeks later, preaching that Christ was risen from the dead. So convincingly that thousands of people believed that. And they all stuck to their story until 10 of them had been murdered. For that story, one exile, that was John. And not one of them ever told the real story. Now, this is kind of the heart of the, the uh, what I call the vast conspiracy fallacy. I mean, not just applying to the... Uh, resurrection but basically conspiracies tend to collapse under their own weight the larger they are the sooner they collapse under their own weight and the more people that know and it's, it's one of those things that's attributed to mark twain uh i don't know whether he said it or not but uh, the, the odds of any secret staying secret decrease with the square of the people who know it uh, that sounds about right i can't prove it necessarily but you know, the more people, if two people know it, it's four times more likely to leak. If 10 people know it, it's 100 times more likely to leak. And, uh, but somehow we're supposed to believe they all kept it quiet and they never leaked it. The late Charles Colson of Watergate infamy and then subsequently who uh, became a Christian and uh, became a bold witness for Christ. Colson later said that the Watergate incident had convinced him of the truth of the resurrection because he realized how utterly impossible it would have been for all the disciples to keep this secret for their whole lives when he and his, actually, I forget, it was a smaller number than 11 for sure, uh, for something like that, uh, close co-conspirators within the Nixon administration, had not been able to keep the secrets of Watergate for even I forget what it was, a matter of weeks. They all, it was leaking like crazy. And you look how stories leak. People always tell. A friend of mine uh, was a principal in a Christian school for, for many years, and he said the main way you found out the things the students did wrong is they told about it. The guilty people told about it. They would have to tell their friends, because what's the use of doing something? If you don't tell somebody, you know what, you really did this. 
But yet, to believe this story, to believe that this is true, we would have to believe that um, these 11 men kept that secret, not for a few weeks or a couple of years, but for the rest of their lives. And 10 of them went to their deaths for it. One was exiled. And nobody ever leaked the real story. And all for something that they knew was false. And for the preaching of a Savior whom they knew was dead, still dead, lying wherever they had disposed of the body. If this is true. We have faith enough to believe all this? Maybe you do. I don't. Sorry, I don't have much faith. I think this is a complete non-starter. This is a, a drastically non-believable story. What else have we got for explanations? Well, next we come to Jena, the Duchy of Saxe Weimar in Germany. Germany wasn't a nation state then. It was a region of Europe. And uh, so the Duchy of Saxe Weimar was independent. But anyway, at the University of Jena, we have a professor who comes up with the swoon hypothesis. Maybe you've heard of this. Like I say, it's one of relatively few contestants in the room when you start talking about a way to explain the fact that Christ was in the tomb, dead, and then he wasn't. Well, what this professor, Heinrich Paulus, did was to deny one of those premises. Christ was in the tomb, but he wasn't dead. He wrote this in a book that he published in 1802 called Philologische Kritische und Historische Kommentar über das Neue Testament. Now, for those of you, if your German is a little rusty, uh, that's a philological and critical and historical commentary on the New Testament, right? So it's pretty much as non-understandable in English as it is in German. Well, not quite. And you probably, you didn't need me to tell you that because you could probably cipher that out just for looking at that. Most of those words are understandable. So he was a German academic. Now, you maybe have heard that, you know, academics, those professors, you got to watch out for those professors because they say a whole bunch of stuff that nobody understands. Yeah. Well, German professors are just like the American ones, only a lot worse. So they do that kind of stuff. Anyway, this guy came out of uh, the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment, that period when they're uh, they think that man, with his reason, plus the evidence of his senses, can come to final answers about truth, meaning, and morals. They want to get rid of revealed religion. They want to get rid of the supernatural. It's all natural religion. Man, with his senses, plus the evidence of his reason, plus, or with his reason, plus the evidence of his senses, can figure out everything. Well, here's Heinrich Paulus, and he's going to figure out this problem that Christ was in the tomb, dead, and then he wasn't. Well, so Heinrich Paulus' answer to this is that Christ was, um, was not dead. He was mostly dead, but he wasn't completely dead. So this asks us to believe that Christ survived the crucifixion. Now, you know that some people, if you tell them that Christ rose from the dead and you, told, you tell them it's a historical fact, they'll say, well, there's never been a case that anyone rises from the dead. Well, actually, there have been cases, other cases dealt with in the Bible, but, okay, in recent times. No. Do you know what? There hasn't ever been, ever, in ancient times, modern times, or anybody else's times, ever, a case of someone surviving a crucifixion. That never happened. You search all the manuscripts, documents of ancient times, 
I don't think you should uh, try the experiment uh, of any crucifixions in the present day, but the point is nobody has ever survived a crucifixion. There's no record of that ever happened. But, says Heinrich Paulus, it happened to Christ. So right away we've, uh, I thought we were trying to stay away from the miraculous here, uh, Dr. Paulus. Yeah, well, anyway, so he survives. Okay, then, then the centurion made a mistake. Centurion thought he was dead, he wasn't really dead. So mostly dead, but he wasn't really dead. Now, the centurion, you think this centurion's seen a few dead bodies? You think he's seen, seen a few people die? Well, there were all the wars, because even if there wasn't a major war in the Roman Empire, somebody was always revolting out in the provinces. The provinces were full of revolting people, and, and the Romans were always killing them. Uh, and so a centurion, you bet. Centurions were always in the thickest of the fighting. They were, they were like the backbone of the Roman army. So if anybody knows what it looks like when somebody dies, it's the centurion. But that's not all. Probably the majority of the deaths that this centurion had seen were people being crucified. See, a crucifixion, you probably know this, it was not a rare event in ancient times, in the Roman era. It was the standard method of crucifixion for non-citizens of Rome. So out here in the provinces, that's most of everybody you run into. Anybody gets executed, and there were lots of laws that, had uh, the death penalty with him. Anybody gets executed, except some of the relatively scarce Roman citizens, or one of your fellow soldiers or something like that, and not even all the soldiers are Roman citizens. Well, if somebody gets executed, it's, it's a crucifixion. And there were more than one, there were multiple occasions, a number of occasions when the Romans crucified dozens or scores or even hundreds. Yeah, hundreds, I think. Once there was a couple of thousand people crucified the same day. So this guy, the centurion stationed in Jerusalem, he's crucified people before. A lot. This is not his first rodeo. He knows what it looks like when somebody dies by crucifixion. They usually don't die this, this fast, but he knows what it looks like. And he also is under, it's, it's a capital crime. It's under the, liable to the death penalty. If he allows the, a capital prisoner to escape in any way, any way whatsoever, including you thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead, they'll kill you for that if it turns out that he wasn't dead. But nonetheless, if we're going to believe uh, Heinrich Paulus's theory here, we're going to have to believe that Christ wasn't dead. The centurion made a mistake. He was so confident in that mistake, he didn't even bother swinging the club and breaking his legs. Now, he broke the other guy's legs. They were still alive. He broke their legs. He breaks somebody's legs and he's being crucified. That uh, accelerates his death. He will be dead within minutes due to, to suffocation. His legs are broken. He will be actually unable to get air into his lungs. That's the way people eventually die. Crucifixion. Break his legs. He dies quickly. Uh, relatively quickly. But he doesn't even bother to do that to Christ. I mean, why bother if, you know, what, what's, why not if he's, if he's dead anyway? But he doesn't even do that, sticks his spear in the side, uh, and um, he sees. And John, who was there, saw uh, the blood and water coming out, which also is an indication of death. So, okay. And then 
Further, if we're going to believe Dr. Paulus's explanation, we're going to have to believe that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of whom would very much have liked to have found Christ alive. They would have been delighted if it turns out he's alive. So they would be looking for that. But they also mistakenly believed he was dead. While they were packing his body in about 100 pounds of spices and tightly winding him in a linen cloth. So their, their interaction with the corpse, which it was, was not just in a passing way, close the eyes and goes on. Uh, oh, no. They, they had to deal with the corpse for a period of time, just about an hour or, or more, to, to get that done. They had to hustle because they had to get it done before 6 p.m., get him in the grave before 6 p.m. Nonetheless, according to Dr. Paulus, they never had a clue that he was alive. And then, despite all this, he was mostly dead, crucified. Nobody ever survived that. He was lanced in the side. He was packed in 100 pounds of spices. He was tightly wrapped in a linen cloth. I would think that would have killed him. He wasn't dead already. But nonetheless, he managed to wake up in the tomb, disentangle himself from the cloth, how do you do that, anyway, when you're all tied up? Somehow he did. Rolled the stone away from the inside. You think about that? That means you can't reach the outer edges of the stone. You're going to have to put your hands, if you're that, if you're Christ, one would have to put one's hands against the smooth, carved surface of that stone and move it. Somehow, he supposedly did this, according to Dr. Paulus, rolled the stone away and walked out. Oh, yeah. And then he dealt with the armed guards. Now, maybe by the time the armed guards see the stone rolling away, someone is rolling it on, away from the inside. Uh, they might have remembered pressing business that they had in other places at that time. So maybe he would have had to deal with them. But still. Is this believable? Do we have enough faith to believe this? Survived the crucifixion, one-off event. Centurion was wrong. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, completely didn't know. He wakes up and gets out of the winding cloth and gets out of the tomb. That's not credible. What makes this at all credible? Why would you even fool around? Why would... Heinrich Paulus, who was a smart guy uh, in other respects, why would you even fool around with an explanation like this? And why do people fool around with it today, which they do? Why? I think what makes it harder to believe the crucifixion is if Christ rose from the dead, then Christ is the Son of God, which means he is God, which means he has a rightful claim to lordship in our lives. People don't want to do that. They don't want to bow the knee to him. They will someday. They don't want to. Anyway. So, but anyway, that's one of the uh, the other contestants for the explanations. What else do we, we got for explanations? Well, once again, Germany, Allgäuerin this time in Baden-Württemberg, 1835. We still got these higher criticism guys coming out of the Enlightenment. We have the vision hypothesis. This is the work of a professor named David Strauss. 
and another book that he wrote, Das Leben Jesu kritisch bearbeitet, which is, that's the life of Christ critically examined. And one of the things in there that became, everything in there became controversial, and of course Christians, the real ones, rejected it. But one of the things that Strauss said in there is he tried to explain away the resurrection that didn't happen. He asks us to believe what? Okay, let's see. Christ never rose at all. He didn't rise. Never rose. Stayed in the tomb. The, the disciples did not see a risen Christ. They saw visions. Not see the risen Christ. They saw visions. That's what uh, Dr. Strauss would have us to believe. And he has had many uh, after him. And, and there will be, like the, the swoon hypothesis, the vision hypothesis, there will be uh, variants of these uh, that people will come up with as a little, this little uh, twist or this little tweak. It's the ba same basic thing, the vision hypothesis. Now, uh, there's a problem with this. You notice what it is? Well, yeah, there's several problems with it actually, but one big problem that stands out right away is this hypothesis leaves us an occupied tomb. It doesn't account for an empty tomb. Christ never rose. His body stayed right there in the tomb. Nobody rolled the door, the stone away. Nobody broke the Roman seal. Regards all that stuff. It's not true. The disciples made it up. They just had hallucinations. Yeah. Well, I'm going to deal with some of those things and get further on. We're circling back and dealing with this. The idea of people are people seeing visions here. Are we talking about visions of Christ, or are we talking about a literal bodily, bodily resurrection? More on that in a few minutes, but. Uh, first, there's the problem of the occupied tomb. You know what? It, it, it's no surprise that it's 18 centuries later before anybody thinks to try that one, right? Nobody tries that on Resurrection Day or, or any time after there or within living memory. Nobody tries to say, um, he never came out of the tomb. He's still in there. That would have been a non-starter. Nobody's going to buy that. Well, 18 centuries later, after we can't even find for sure what is the actual site of the tomb, is it the tomb, the, you know, the, under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or is it the Garden Tomb? And people can argue about that. But then, then, 18 centuries later, Strauss can come out with this idea, not at the time, because that idea of the occupied tomb wouldn't work. Okay, well, back to, of course, there we go, the enemies. Again, I said we'd be coming back to them. So again, Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, and afterwards on this issue of who's going to try the who's going to try to uh, not going to try to argue empty tomb. Let's see here. Um, enemies: the priests, rulers, elders, and scribes. The whole religious hierarchy of the Jews there were getting quite rich, doing quite well for themselves by ruling over the Jewish religion there. And uh, within six weeks of the very public crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, and it was very public, it was not just that you could go and see it, it's that if you were not going to see the crucifixion of Jesus, you always, almost would have had to have been self-isolating. If you lived in Jerusalem and you didn't see Jesus being crucified, it was right outside the city, on a hill, very prominent place, very visible, 
Maybe if you've got no windows that look outside that, if you never go, if you don't go out that side of town at all that day, if the town's not that big, and yeah, it was really public. So they saw it. So within six weeks of that, thousands of people in Jerusalem were believing Christ had risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, the rulers of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, the same enemies I'm talking about here, the priests, the rulers, the elders, and scribes, and you read in the book of Acts, and you can see this. They showed themselves willing to do anything, up to and including murder, to destroy this faith. They would, of course, usually not uh, wield the instruments of death with their own hands, although in the case of Stephen, they did stone him with stones they flung from their own hands. But uh, they would get Herod to kill James, and uh, then later tried to have the Romans kill various people. They authorized Paul uh, to go up to Damascus and carry people off prisoners and kill them. And Paul apparently also killed people around Jerusalem. So they're absolutely willing to do anything, including murder, to destroy this faith, to get people to stop believing in Jesus. And yet, and they are six weeks after the crucifixion, when this starts, and it ramps up very quickly, as you know, read the book of Acts, and I know you have, you're familiar with these stories. It ramps up very quickly, 3,000 in a day, 5,000 in a day, and so on. And yet, these enemies of the faith of Jesus Christ never do the one thing that would have stopped Christianity dead. That is, they never produce the body of Jesus. He never bring his body out. Body still in the tomb. Not with their own hands, of course. Then they would be unclean. They wouldn't want to be unclean, would they? No, no. They have people for that. They hire stuff done all the time, right? They hire, they, they get, they've got guards to do that kind of thing. They can absolutely get that kind of stuff done. And they do. All kinds of dirty work. They hire it done. They would hire somebody to bring out the body of Jesus. It's still be recognizable. And that would have stopped Christianity. Hey, you know, they're telling you he's risen dead. Well, guess what? Here's his body. Put it out in the town square. I know it's gruesome, but you think they wouldn't have tried that if they could have? I think they would have. They couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. So that, uh, that attempted explanation falls to the ground. They could easily have brought forward the body of Christ if the tomb had been occupied. But the tomb was empty. At the time, nobody thought to try to say the tomb was not empty. Okay, now let's talk about the eyewitnesses. If we don't we have a tomb that's empty, Christ is in there, it is simply not remotely credible. It's not something that we could bring ourselves to believe at all that he wasn't really dead and he got out on his own. It's not remotely credible that his disciples came in there and somehow got past the guards and stole the body away. That's just, that requires too many ridiculously incredible assumptions. It's not credible that, okay, that the body was still in the tomb and the chief priests and, and all didn't bring it out and all the witnesses were. So what happened then? What really happened? Let's look at the eyewitnesses, the primary sources, people who saw it with their own eyes. I 
as a history professor, I try to drum it into my students' heads that uh, you need to go and look at what the eyewitnesses said. So we're going to do that. So who are some eyewitnesses? Well, there's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's Salome, probably the mother of James and John. And uh, you remember the story, it's covered there in those scriptures that you see in the slide, uh, Matthew 28 and John 20. They went to the tomb, they to embalm Christ, they found the tomb open and empty. And as they were on their way back into the city, they, I know I don't know if it was the other women or maybe just these two, but they saw Christ. In the case of Mary Magdalene, quite close to the tomb. Uh, apparently, very much in the vicinity of the tomb, actually met the Lord Jesus Christ there. So they saw him. Now, not only did they see him, but uh, they were they were clinging to his feet. You can read about that in John, Matthew, and it's just, well, it's in John. He says, stop clinging to me. So they were clinging to him. Now, is that a hallucination? Is that a vision? They all had the same hallucination. They all had the same vision, and they were clinging to him physically. Now, this is a physical body. Can't cling to a hallucination. He says, stop clinging to me. So this is somebody with a physical body. Okay. Uh, so these are eyewitnesses, and they also physically grabbed his, uh, grabbed him around the ankles, apparently. And then there was Cleopas and his friend. That same resurrection day, they walk out to Emmaus. It's a relatively short, quite short distance away from Jerusalem nearby. Cleopas and his friend, and someone joins them all, all along the road, and it's the Lord, but they don't realize it. And you remember the story, and they get to their house, they invite him in, and he breaks the bread and blesses it, and they realize it's the Lord, and he's taken up, he's, he vanishes from their sight. And they run back to Jerusalem, they tell, they find the 11, minus Thomas, wasn't there with them, in the upper room. Peter, I'll get to him in a minute. They find the 11 minus Thomas. They're in the end room. So in that upper room, got the 11 minus Thomas. He wasn't there. So there's 10 disciples. Cleopas and his friend, they're not a, they weren't of the 12, but they were uh, outer circle of disciples. They arrived there. So we've got now 12 men in the room. And, and Cleopas and his friend come in. That makes 12. So there were 10. Cleopas and his friend come in, makes 12. And they say, you know, we, we saw the Lord on the road, et cetera, et cetera. And then the 10 guys who are in the room already, they say, yes, and the women went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty, and the Lord has appeared to Peter. And then, while they're still talking about this, the Lord is in the room with them. They were in that upper room, and the doors were shut. Kind of reminds you of that, uh, that old gospel song by Paul Rader. Third verse says, uh, fear not, little flock, whatever your lot he enters all rooms, the door is being shut. He never forsakes, he never is gone. So count on his presence. Um, well, I forget now, I forgot the last last phrase of that. So some of you all are remembering, you're thinking, why can't you remember that? Well, uh, anyway, the Lord's with us and he does enter all rooms, the door is being shut. I know, you know, some uh, preachers have said, you see, this means that uh, this was a resurrection body that, that Christ had, so he could walk through walls and doors, and, and we're going to have resurrection bodies someday, we certainly will. And we'll be able to walk through doors and walls, and, and maybe we will. I don't know otherwise, but I will say this. I do know 
the Lord Jesus, before he was dead and buried and rose from the dead, could do things that I can't do now. So I don't know. I'll leave that for wiser heads of mine. But anyway, point is here, there are 12 men in the room and the Lord appeared to them. They all saw him and he ate and watched him eat. Could you watch somebody eat in a vision? Yeah. You know what? When the vision was over, your food would still be there. It wouldn't be eaten up. They watched him eat. And after he left, the food was still gone. The food that he ate was gone. So there was proof. He was there in the body. He showed them his hands and feet, invited them to touch him. And he said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit, a vision, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So not a, not a vision, flesh and bones, he eats. Then resurrection day plus seven. Now I know it says eight days later, but remember the Jewish way of counting days, you count the first day and you count the last day. That's why Christ rises on the third day. So he was crucified on Friday, and then there was Saturday, and he rose on Sunday, three days. Eight days later, it's a week, it's one week later, so you've got you know um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, no, wait, from Sunday to Sunday, excuse me. So they would, yeah, Sunday is the eighth day. So eight days later, or we would say seven days later, in Jerusalem, and there are the 11. Now Thomas is there, so they're, they're at full strength. And uh, remember, the Lord appeared to them, and Thomas believed and said, my Lord and my God. And again, remember, Jesus showed Thomas his side, said you can touch the wounds, scars in his side, in his hands. Thomas apparently did. He believed without that. But again, Bodily present, not a vision. Eyewitness testimony. And some days later in Galilee, we've got uh, Peter, James, John, Thomas, Nathaniel, and two other disciples at the Sea of Galilee. That's the occasion where he says to cast a net on the other side of the boat. And they do, and they catch, and they come ashore, and it's bread and fish, and there's bread and fish on the fire, and the Lord's there. It says, come and dine. You know that whole story. And uh, so again, eyewitnesses. And then uh, the 11 plus more than 500 others, the more than 500 others talked about by Paul. Now, this is on a mountain, and this is where he gets the Great Commission, going into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, the, the language there in Matthew seems to imply that there were others indefinite. There weren't many others present. It doesn't really say how many. Then Paul says there were more than 500. Notice most of these are alive. Throughout this, the... Uh, the preachers of the gospel, the people who are preaching the story of the gospel are challenging others to check out their story. They're not saying, just believe me, believe me, believe me. You know, how, you know I don't tend to trust people who, who, who repeat, now believe me, it's like this. Yeah, well, you know, trust but verify, as Reagan said. Well, Paul says, hey, verify. And he's over there in 1 Corinthians 15, read that a little while ago. Most, some of whom are dead, but most are still alive. And living in the Jerusalem area, if you want, you can go to Jerusalem. You can ask them. Find out. Ask around for people who saw Jesus. And you can see multiple eyewitnesses that he was alive. And then Resurrection Day plus 40 on Mount Olivet, outside Jerusalem. The 11 were present. Christ was taken up from them into heaven. So we have here multiple witnesses. We can't put an exact number on it because it's got that more than 500, which is indefinite, but well over 500 people saw him alive in the flesh with flesh and bones, uh, eating, talking, some of them uh, 
you know, grabbed him physically, and he was physically alive and present after he rose from the dead. So uh, there's evidence. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what worth, uh, you know, we talked about evidence for the resurrection. We were hoping that you would give us some historical evidence. There you are. Eyewitnesses are the gold standard of history. That's how we how we do history with lots of eyewitnesses. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but those are in the Bible. What what about other sources? You know, I mean, don't you have any other sources for it, like all those other events in history? You know, those actual historical events. Oh, really? Actual historical events? Like what historical events? Well, you know, like Caesar's conquest of Gaul, or or the lives of of the Roman emperors, or things like that. Yeah. What, what about historical evidence for those things? Caesar conquest of Gaul, what have we got for that? We've got a book that Caesar wrote himself. One book that Caesar wrote himself. That's it. I mean, pretty well know he was there, but for most of the story itself, for most any of really of the details, you're going to fill in the details, we've got Caesar's commentaries on, on the Gallic War. And that's it. And how do we know that we have the real text of it? Well, the oldest extant copy we have of Caesar's commentary is, is, is centuries, multiple centuries later than Caesar wrote. You don't have things that Caesar wrote. Well, what about the lies of the Caesars? Well, what about a Caesar like uh, Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus? I, what, you don't remember that one? He actually goes usually by his nickname Caligula. We call him by his nickname Caligula. You know, the crazy guy who wanted to make his horse a senator. Crazy, isn't it? And again, look at our Senate. Who's laughing? But a little, okay, all of our senators, they, they go on two legs. I know it's tempting to believe that a lot of them slither on their bellies, but nah, they all go on two legs. No horses, no snakes in our Senate. Uh, but Caligula, you know, wants to make his horse a senator or maybe consul. is crazy. He has all kinds of people killed. Really nasty Romans. How many sources do we have for the life of Caligula? We have... One, we've got Suetonius, one book, that's it. And Suetonius wrote about 80 years after Caligula died. And the oldest copy of Suetonius's writings that we have today is 700 years later than Suetonius. What about the Bible? Well, the Bible, as you know, these people, we have eyewitnesses of the people doing the writing, Matthew, Mark, John, possibly Luke, were eyewitnesses to Christ in the flesh there at the time of, you know, after just after his resurrection, after, during those 40 days, uh, between the time he rose and the time he ascended into heaven. And uh, the others are quoting eyewitnesses whom they name and tell you about. And... Um, uh, so we, we, multiple writers, right there at the time, not 80 years later, right there at the time, multiple sources. And then we have copies of their, of their writings that date back not seven centuries after they wrote, but about one century, give or take. Plus or minus, about a century, maybe less, uh, from the time those things were written out. So the Bible is the most reliable historical document about ancient times, and it is the most 
really the most reliable historical source. So we've got better historical evidence. Well, so then why doesn't everybody believe in the resurrection? Well, I said it before. Why do people say, well, yeah, the Bible, it's not a reliable source. Why is it not a reliable source? Well, if you can pin them down, they would say, well, because it has miraculous things in it. Well, like what miraculous things in it? Well, like the resurrection. Hmm. It's totally circular, isn't it? That's circular logic. You're saying the Bible's not a reliable source because it talks about the resurrection. So there are no reliable sources for the resurrection because any source that told them that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they would count on as unreliable. But we look at this with an open mind can see, yes, the historical evidence is inescapable. Christ did rise from the dead. And by rising from the dead, he gave the clearest and most convincing and most inescapable proof that he is the Son of God and that his death was an atonement for sins of all who will come to him and abide in him by repentance and faith. And we can be saved through him. So praise the Lord. Christ is risen indeed. All right, Brother Robert, I'll hand it back to you. All right, thank you so much. Okay, and I'm, I always enjoy that teaching on the um, the resurrection, and I had never thought about, I always just thought that the uh, swoon theory, the guy got up in his, uh, that Jesus got up wrapped in his 100 pounds of stuff and, and didn't even get out, and he just hopped over the door and knocked against it and tumbled over. But I like the idea of not being able to grab the rock. Uh, no matter what it is, it's a ridiculous theory. So, you know, it's a, you know, that's why when we, we say he is risen, the appropriate response is always he is risen indeed, uh, because he has for a fact. All right. <clears throat> We've got just a moment. I tell you what I'm going to do. Um, let's since we're a little bit early before the start hour, let me share a little um, Resurrection Sunday music with you real quick, and then we'll do our announcements and we'll go on in. But uh, and I may even share this uh, file again at the end. Uh, but what's going to happen when I share this is that you're going to see a black box pop up on your screen, and a video should start. Uh, momentarily after that, and so um, I, this is just a duet. Uh, Judy and I got together, and we filmed a duet that we haven't sung together in a long time, but I know a lot of us, a lot of you haven't seen Judy or me in a while, and so uh, we've dyed our hair, gotten thinner, and look younger, but uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy the song we did for you. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. 